You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Years ago, I promised God that I would never run away from any hard subject, that if the Bible says it, if culture needs to hear it, we're going to talk about it. And today is one of those Sundays. So if you're visiting with us today, I just want to say welcome. We're glad you're here. We've been working through the book of Luke, but today is going to take us to one of those subjects that everybody's got an opinion on in culture and especially within the church. And uh, so I'm just going to ask for a ton of grace. I don't have all the answers. Some of you are going to love the first half of this sermon and you might hate the second half. And some of you are going to hate the first half of the sermon and you're going to love the second half. And I'm just asking for a lot of grace. We want to be people who open God's word and whatever God says, we're going to do it, right? So we're, we're, not going to, we're not going to make God be who we want him to be. We're going to make God who he says he is and then adjust our lives accordingly. So here's our setup. You ready? I found this quote and I cannot prove with absolute certainty that this quote is true. But it has been said that Martin Luther said, whoever drinks beer, he is quick to sleep. Whoever sleeps long does not sin. Whoever does not sin enters heaven. Thus, let us drink beer. (laughs) Some of you are still catching up on that one. All right. In no way am I saying everybody should go drink beer today. Somebody did send me a picture of last service with a, with a, with a beer in their hand uh, while they were watching the service. I thought, I don't know what to make of that. Anyway, <laughs> but today we are going to talk about alcohol, and we're going to look at everything that God's Word says about alcohol, and then we're just going to wrestle with that, all right? So I need a lot of grace up front. Please give me grace because I love you and you love me. But let's go to the book of Luke and see where we've been, and it'll make sense why we're talking today about alcohol, right? Luke chapter 7, I'll read it, explain it, and then we'll jump in. Luke chapter 7, verse 31. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. And here's what they're calling. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. So what Jesus is saying, again, context is king. So if you've been with us, you might know the context, but Jesus has recently been talking about a man named John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And John, when he came, he was a prophet, the greatest prophet ever in the Bible. And John came promoting Jesus, setting up the the ministry of Jesus. And he came wearing camel hair and eating locust and honey. He had a very rigid life. Jesus came, though, and he came not out in the wilderness, not wearing camel hair, not eating locust and honey. Instead, he hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes and Pharisees, and he went to these elaborate meals at times with, with wealthy people. And in all of them, the, the, some of the people in Jesus' day, not everybody, but some people in Jesus' day, they are uh, upset at the way John the Baptist did his ministry, and they're upset at the way Jesus did his ministry. And the whole point here is, we played a pipe for you. This is dancing music. It might be like a wedding feast or a party, right? We played a pipe for you, and you didn't even dance. That's Jesus. And over here, we sang a dirge. This would be like a a sad song, maybe like at a funeral, and you did not cry. In other words, you are so disappointed with the way that God keeps coming to you. It doesn't matter if he's celebrating or crying. You're just mad because he doesn't look exactly how you want him to look. Now, he goes on in the very next verse, and he says, For John the Baptist came neither eating or drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man, that's Jesus' title for himself. He came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Do you get it? Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter how God comes to you. If you don't want to hear from God, you won't. And that's really important for us today. Again, I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know your background. 
But as we're going to jump into this idea, Jesus says, I came eating and drinking, and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard. But that means that Jesus drank. So what does it mean that Jesus drank? In fact, maybe the better question is, what does God's word actually say about alcohol? Now, throughout the message, I'm gonna show you different verses, and uh, some of the verses are gonna refer to beer, some might refer to like a fermented drink, some are gonna refer to wine. We're including all of them. Whenever you see one of them, just assume it means all of them, right? Just because it says wine, it doesn't mean what you might call spirits or hard liquor or whatever. It's all included. All the wisdom is wrapped up in the same thing, okay? So we're gonna look at these passages, and again, on the front end, we're gonna look at all the ways that alcohol is celebrated in God's word. And then the second half, we're gonna look at the rest of the story, right? So first, let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter five, let me read it to you and then I'll give you some context. It says this, this is what I have observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Before we go on, so one of the things you need to know about the book of Ecclesiastes, it's written by a guy named Solomon. Solomon is considered the wisest man ever to live besides Jesus Christ. Solomon is literally infused by the Holy Spirit with wisdom. Now, what Solomon says is, I allowed myself to experience all of the highs and the lows of life, to just take it all in and drink it. So I I made lots of money. I built lots of vineyards. I had lots of servants. I drank lots of alcohol. I I had a lot of um, sex with a lot of people. I mean, he allowed himself to do it all, and then he wrote based off of what he experienced in that. The book of Ecclesiastes is unique because it's Solomon at the end of his life and he's looking backward over his life and he's coming to a a conclusion that all of life is hevel. That's the Hebrew word for meaningless or wasteful. Life is like a vapor. It's here one moment and it's gone the next. And here's Solomon at the end of his life, towards the end of his life, whatever that means, most likely based off how long people lived back then, maybe he's in his 60s, maybe And he's looking back over his life and he's realizing, I've built all these things, but the next generation doesn't even care. They're going to tear down everything I built and build whatever they want. He's realizing, he's looked at his life, what has it really accomplished? Many of the things that I experienced created heartache and pain. And in fact, the book of Ecclesiastes is probably written to a guy who's really depressed. He honestly could use like a, a counselor, maybe even a Xanax, and I'm not even joking about that. A lot of the book is him being depressed, but he comes to these conclusions in the book. So it's dangerous to read Ecclesiastes in every single line. You go, well, there's a principle for life. No, because you got to understand the context. But there are these summary passages where he realizes, you know what? Life is short. Life is hard. Somewhat, it feels like a waste because I'm at the end. And now what? Like it's just over. So therefore, maybe the purpose of life is to enjoy it every single day to realize this is your lot in life. In fact, he goes on and he says, moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. In other words, when somebody really realizes all the blessings that God has given them, and they're enjoying their family, and they're enjoying their friends, and they're enjoying food, and they're enjoying their job, and they're enjoying drink, then you realize like you don't have time to stop and really think about much else. God just fills your heart with gladness because you're thankful. You ever stop and think about, I don't know if you pray before you eat. We've always prayed before I ate. That's what I was taught to do. And a lot of times when we pray before we eat, we like we bless the food. And like, what exactly are we blessing? What does it mean? Lord, bless this food because God, it's Taco Bell and you are the only one, Lord, who could possibly bless this food. 
It's going good, going down. It's not so good. Okay, so, like, what does it mean? Did you know that when you're blessing your food, all you're really doing is thanking God? That's it. That's it. So, like, if you really aren't sure what to say in that moment, really, here's the way the vast majority of my prayers for food go. God, thank you for this food. Thank you for the hands that made it. Thank you for the taste buds to enjoy it. Thank you for the money to buy it because we realize, God, everything we have is a gift from you to enjoy. So, God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's what you're doing. That's all that Solomon's doing. But Solomon wraps drink into that. It's not specifically in Hebrew the word for wine or fermented drink. There is a word for that. But throughout the book, it's pointed to so that we know he's not just talking about water. He's talking about drink that brings happiness. In fact, later in chapter 10, verse 19, he says, a feast is made for laughter. Wine makes life merry and money is the answer for everything. (laughs) I went and read a bunch on this particular text and scholars land in like three or four major camps as to what exactly this proverb means. Sometimes Solomon's proverbs are cut and dry, easy to get. This one might be a little harder. Here's the group I landed. If you disagree with me about the way to interpret this, that's fine. There's plenty of room for disagreement here. But here's the way that I interpret this passage. What do we take away from this? Well, feasts are good, right? Getting together with friends, it's graduation season. Some of you have been going through graduation, some of you high schoolers, right? Get together with parties. You ever notice you get invited to a party and because you got your own thoughts about life and what you want to do, you're like, oh, I don't want to go to that party. And then you get there, you're like, that was so much fun. I'm so glad we saw so-and-so. That was a blast. That was great, right? That's the point. Feasts, parties, celebrations, they're a gift from God. Get together with people, laugh, have fun. Life is too short. Enjoy it. In fact, wine makes life merry. Like, it's a good thing. The problem is feasting and drink cost money. So if you really want to continue to do all the good things in life, you better work hard because money is the solution to enjoying all the other gifts of God. And therein lies the tension we see in Scripture. Like with all things, when we're talking about wisdom, if you give yourself to drink, it'll ruin your life. You won't have a job. You won't have money. You won't be feasting. Your life will be over. No joke. Your life will be over. You'll ruin it. You'll train wreck it. In fact, there's a passage in the New Living Translation that says, do not give in to much drink. This will ruin your life. That's the tension that we're seeing here. These things are good, but you better still have a job. You better still honor your marriage. You better still raise your kids. There is a balance that is needed here. But what we can walk away from is alcohol can be a good gift from our good God and Father in heaven. It can be. What you're gonna see over the next 10 or 15 minutes is I'm gonna use words like can and may and maybe (laughs) a lot because I wanna put as many qualifiers on this as possible. It can be a good gift. But like all of God's good gifts, it can be abused like everything else, right? Sex is a good gift in the right place at the right time with the right person. Food can be a good gift in the right place at the right time with the right people. Water can be a good gift. Too much water and you'll what? You'll kill yourself. So all of God's good gifts can be abused. But let's just stick with the good gift part for a little longer, ready? Psalms 104, verse 13 says this. He, that's God, waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for the people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The whole idea here is that God gives a lot of things that are great for life. 
right? Oil in that day would have been used uh, often, like maybe we would use lotions or essential oils today, right? So he's saying, God produces so many good things for your body and for your life. Enjoy them. And one of the things listed is wine. Like God is a good God. He gives good gifts to his children. Use them. Enjoy them. That's why alcohol for some people can be a fun way to feast and celebrate momentous days. Some people can be. Some people can't handle it. For some people, it isn't wise. We'll get to that. But for some people, it can be. This text, this next one I want to show you, it's going to take a little setting up. So in the Old Testament, there's something called the tithe. And I don't have time to preach the tithe, but there are really three kinds of tithe. So in ancient Israel, there were 12 tribes. And 11 of the tribes were given land, and then they had to work the land. They were mostly farmers. They had animals. They had crops. But they, again, from their businesses grew and, and flourished. But the one tribe, the Levites, they weren't allowed to have any land. They were the priests of God and those who worked in the temple, and they were paid by all the other tribes. Their families and their descendants were paid for by the other tribes. And the way that God paid them is uh, they would take a tenth of whatever they gathered, whatever they gained, and they would bring it to the Levites, and they would live off it. Then there was another tithe, and that tithe was just for feasting. It was the third and the sixth year. They would just take a tenth of everything and they would just throw big parties together and they would just celebrate God's goodness and faithfulness. Then there was another tithe that was just for the poor and the widows among them to be able to eat. And so they would take a bad tithe and it would be to meet the needs. Now, there's a lot of ways that would happen. The text that I'm going to show you, it's, it's before God has established the temple in Jerusalem. And so what he's telling them is when God sets his temple in this place and his name gathers there and uh, you find yourself too far away to gather up all your tithe and to bring them because it's just too far to go with all that, what you could do is take your tithe and turn it into other items like silver, take the silver with you, then you can buy whatever your heart desires and you can feast and celebrate. This is talking about possibly that second or third tithe, not the first one. So here's some of that text, ready? Deuteronomy 14, 22. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to reverse the Lord, sorry, revere the Lord, don't reverse him, the Lord your God always. But if that place is just too distant, and you have been blessed by the Lord your God, and you cannot carry your tithe, because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away. Then exchange your tithe for silver, and take the silver with you, and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And some of you just went, amen. So the whole idea here, the whole idea is that I would take my tithe, and if it's too far away, I would turn it into silver, and then I'd take the silver, and we would just get together and throw a big party to honor and celebrate God. This is not a worship service. There are literally Old Testament passages that talk about never coming in to the presence of God drunk that that would de be deeply offensive to God. So this is about gathering with other family members and friends in Israel and just celebrating some of these feasts in the presence of God. And God's saying, I want you to plan on spending some of your money in this way. And then other parts of Deuteronomy 14 say, don't forget the Levites, don't forget the widows, don't forget the orphans. Remember, your job is also to care for the poor and the hungry and the needy in your community. 
So it just shows us that God's view is that, yes, drink can be used in positive ways. In fact, alcohol can actually have some medicinal benefits. Throughout the world, uh, water is... I don't know, gross? I don't know what the right word is. It can have bacteria in it. When, when you go to places like Mexico or India on our mission trips, one of the phrases you'll often hear in some of the places is make sure you pop the cap. Make sure that you're the one who opened the water bottle. Somebody didn't fill it at a source, right? Like a local sink or a faucet, and then it's got the bacteria in the water. So the way that they would deal with this in the first century a lot of times is they would either drink wine or they would drink wine mixed with water so that the alcohol could help kill the bacteria. This is apparently what we see going on when Paul writes to a young protege of his, a young minister, and he's trying to teach him. First Timothy chapter 5, he says, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. So Paul's advice to this young pastor is, hey, quit drinking just water. You need to drink some wine or perhaps a wine mixed with water. This is why you keep getting sick, which tells us a lot about Timothy's ministry. Like, the dude's making a lot of trips to the bathroom while he's trying to serve Jesus. And the poor guy is like just miserable. And Paul's like, I, there's probably, Timothy is convicted that he's not supposed to do this. And Paul's like, look, you've got to do You got to take care of your body. But this is where we're going to start to transition into the rest of the story. So if you have loved the passages that I've shared with you, you might hate everything else that I'm about to say. Because the Bible says a lot about alcohol, and it's a nuanced approach. Let me start with this. So I read a lot. I'm constantly on the internet. I'm constantly looking at news articles and studies and stuff, and just seeing what we're learning about God's great world today. And this study just came out. I think it was in the New York Times. And I'm going to totally botch the, the doctor's name. I think it's Dr. Tim Naomi or Naomi. I don't know how to say his name. And um, he, he, they did this long-term study, and he's writing about it, that basically most of us have believed into a lie that a little bit of alcohol is good for us and is good for our heart, that there actually isn't a ton of study to back that up. In fact, the newest data is showing that a very, very, very small amount of alcohol actually does really damaging things to our bodies, far less than you would imagine that it actually does. In fact, here's part of the quote from the article. The picture is becoming clearer, he says. Even small amounts of alcohol can have health consequences. Research published in November revealed that between 2015 and 2019, excessive alcohol use resulted in roughly 140,000 deaths per year in the United States. About 40% of those deaths had acute causes like car crashes, poisonings, and homicides. But the majority were caused by chronic conditions attributed to alcohol, such as liver disease, cancer, and heart disease. And this is where Dr. Naomi says, risks start to go up well below levels where people would think, oh, that person has an alcohol problem. Alcohol is harmful to the health, starting at very low levels. When I was a young man, um, I was raised by two parents who were not alcoholics. But both of my parents had parents who were alcoholics. My parents had a very healthy view of alcohol. My dad oversaw an office of employees, and he would throw parties, and they would have alcohol there. My parents almost never drank. They did occasionally have a drink. But because of their experiences, the idea of getting drunk or giving your life to alcohol was 
something that turned them off to it totally. It did not appeal to them. I say that because I, I've been around alcohol my whole life. I've seen a number of friends and tragedies. One of my closest friends in Colorado's dad was a raging alcoholic to the point where he lost all the family's money. And at one point, they were living in cardboard boxes until a family in the church found them and brought them into their home. But sadly, had to kick him out of the house because he wouldn't stop drinking. He went through a number of uh, stays and, and rehab and really did try to turn his life around, would fall off the wagon and get back on. And I was always proud of him for trying. I don't know where he sits today, but I just watched the damage in my friend as an adult trying to unpack his childhood. And with his dad went through a couple years of sober sobriety, um, I remember asking him, like, hey, what's it like to, to have your dad back? And he's like, I don't know what it means to have my dad back. I feel like for the first time in my life, I have my dad. That was a humbling thing to hear. When I was a young man, my dad, um, after church, he was an elder in our church, and he would often take communion into a gentleman's home, and his name was Rick Hamus. And as a young boy, say 8, 10, 12 years old, oh, I always hated going to Rick's house because it was after church and it was beautiful outside like it is today. I just wanted to go out and play. I just wanted to go be a kid. And sometimes my dad would make me go inside with him. And I didn't want to go inside because when Rick was a teenager, he went to a party and everybody was drinking. And one of his friends said he was fine to drive. And they got in the car together and they were in a major car accident. And nothing happened to the driver, a few bumps and bruises, but Rick was ejected from the car and he was paralyzed from the neck down from when he was a teenager. And I remember when I was a little older and my dad made me go with him to visit Rick and I still didn't want to. Rick couldn't wait for my dad to show up that week so he could show him for the first time in decades, he could just barely twitch his finger. I'm not a fool now. I know why my dad took me on those trips, partly to bless Rick, partly to get my attention. Because whatever benefits may come from alcohol, strong warnings come also. And I want to share some of those passages with you because I need you to hear them. Proverbs, Solomon again, he says this, who has woe? You remember woe? My friend Andy came here and preached on a few weeks ago. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. I love Solomon here. He's just like, and who's got issues? The guy who drinks a lot. Who wakes up in the morning and goes, I don't know where this black eye came from. The guy who drinks a lot. The same guy who Ecclesiastes is like, God gave you drink to enjoy. Is the same guy who says, hey, be careful here because there's a danger here. In fact, he goes on the next verse. He says, do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. And think about that for a minute. I love, he just painted this entire picture of addiction. Oh, it looks so appealing. And you think to yourself, oh, that looks so red. That would taste so good. It would do so many things for me. Be careful, because on the other side of this is a significant pain it's going to bite. It looks good on the front end. It's like Taco Bell. On the back end, it's not going to go well. Poor Taco Bell. The next verse, 
Your eyes will see strange sights and your mind will imagine confusing things. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. What, a, what an interesting picture. You, you know immediately what he's talking about, right? The guy who's just, gals just had too much drink and they look like they're on a boat. And you're like, where is this guy going, right? You see it, you see it, they don't. They hit me, you will say. But I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? You ever been at a party with somebody and they're just acting like an absolute moron? They're mean, they're rude. Not every drunk is mean or rude, but you've seen that person. When I was a teenager, um, you could question my parents' parenting later, but this worked for me. I remember being in the car multiple times. My parents said, we do not want you to drink until you're old enough. But if you ever find yourself at a party and somebody uh, comes up to you and they give you a drink and you're going to give in because you feel the peer pressure, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that drink. I want you to go in the bathroom. I want you to dump it out in the sink and I want you to fill it up with water. Nobody will know. So I was about 17 years old and I found myself in this situation. I took about one drink of the beer and I thought to myself, this is disgusting. Why does anybody drink this stuff? But now I got a conundrum. I got a beer in my hand. So I went to the bathroom, I dumped it out, I filled it up with water, and I walked around the party, and nobody knew. And ironically, nobody wanted to waste their beer to give me more, so they were content with me having my one. But I watched as some of my closest friends cheated on their girlfriends and boyfriends that night. I watched as two guys who were close friends go outside and get in a fist fight. And I sat there watching this unfold because I didn't have the alcohol in me, and I remember thinking, this is what the big rages? This is why everybody's doing this? I don't understand. Why, why is this so attractive? Solomon is just simply here saying, have you seen this pattern? Have you seen this pattern from people who drink? They, they keep going down this road, and even though it hurts them, they wake up and they say, can I have another one? Because see, the Bible warns us of just how dangerous and consuming alcohol can be in our lives. Is it a good gift from a good God? Yeah, it can be. But it also could be abused terribly, terribly. And I know that that's gonna be true in this room in part because of how many conversations I had after the last service. I wanna, oh man, I had a couple people come up to me and just humbly say, man, I'm really glad you said that today because I needed it. And I said, not looking forward to the conversation with your spouse later, are you? And I'm like, no, no, I'm not. But thank you for being a pastor who confronts me. And other people came up to me and said, man, I sure hope my spouse was listening. The whole time I just kept looking straight ahead because I didn't want them to like, are you listening? Are you getting this? You know. But that's how this goes. The Bible tells us, you know, it doesn't take long and dangerous things can happen. That's why Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He picks sober mind because it's so prevalent in their day. Alcohol was a part of so many different things. Man, be alert, be awake. Keep your wits about you. Satan wants to destroy you. One young lady came up last service and just said, my mom died. 
in a tragic car accident just after my 18th birthday, and alcohol became my comfort. But I'm just convicted by God's word, and I want to change. And I'm so thankful for God's word that meets us and loves us enough to warn us, but and what a perfect moment for the enemy to come in and steal, kill, and destroy and try to devour you. So many people I know who alcohol is a problem for them, it has become a comfort for them. I had a hard day, so I have a drink. But you don't even realize. You don't even realize that it's ruining your life, that it's destroying you. That's why Paul says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. I love here, there's like, a, there's like a, a, a silly bottom line, but don't be filled with the spirits, be filled with the spirit. The whole idea here is you won't be able to think clearly when you're doing this. Have you ever noticed that uh, nobody ever thinks they've had too many? Have you noticed this? Okay, let's not make it about anybody else. Have you ever noticed when you're drinking that you never know when you've had too many? You start using phrases like, I'm not drunk, I'm just bust, right? Or I'm just drinking. Some people will say, I got to keep my buzz going. Then you get commercials come out like, buzz driving is drunk driving. Like, well, how do I know when I'm actually drunk? How do I know when I've gone too far? And here's the thing, you'll rarely ever know. One reason you'll rarely ever know is because of pride. Let's just be honest, because we're not drinking right now, but because of pride, because we don't want to admit when we're wrong. We hate it. We're embarrassed by it. We don't want to say it. And the other problem here, just going to be honest for a second, ready? The other problem here is uh, we don't typically surround ourselves with people who would tell us the truth. Every single addict has what's called an enabler. An enabler is somebody who allows them to continue in their addiction and not face the reality of the decisions that they're making. So the enabler might make more money to cover up for it. Remember, good feasting and good drink takes more money. A good enabler might, um, uh, might, not, uh, might cover for somebody or tell lies for them or, or try to hide them when they're really going on. A good enabler is not going to confront them and tell them the truth. Listen, I don't know about you, but I have friends in my life who hurt me all the time, and I need them in my life. Solomon, who wrote the Proverbs, he says, a wound from an enemy, sorry, a wound from a friend is better than a kiss from an enemy. And what he's trying to say there is, man, I'd rather be surrounded by people who are willing to punch me in the face because they love me than a bunch of people who will not tell me what I really need to hear. So if you are finding that your spouse keeps saying to you, you've had too many, or you're doing this all the time, and you're not listening, you better thank God that he put a spouse in your life willing to speak the truth to you because most people struggling with this don't have that. If you find yourself surrounded only by friends who tell you you're fine, you're fine, keep doing it, it might be time to get a new set of friends. I know this isn't easy to hear, but it is the truth. Do not get drunk. Why? It leads to all kinds of evils. In fact, all of this leads me to the conclusion, conclusion, no Christian should ever, ever be drunk or have an ongoing problem of drunkenness. And I get it. How do I know when I've had too many? If you aren't sure, back down. The problem is, 
alcohol catches up in your body over time, right? So you start drinking, you don't know, and then it gets into your blood system. Next thing you know, you're too far gone. It's too late. That's why you need those wise people in your life. Listen, if you're married, what I'm about to tell you will be revolutionary. It'll change everything, and you will hate it. You will hate it. You'll be so mad at me that I said it, and that's fine. I'm okay with that. But Paul says your body belongs to two people. First, God. He says your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, so honor God with your body. So the first thing I have to ask is, what does God want me to do with my body? It doesn't matter what I want, what he wants. But the second thing is if you're married, your body also belongs to your spouse. I know that's not really popular to hear, but if your spouse and you can have an honest conversation, now if you're the spouse who isn't the drinker, who needs to have the hard conversation, you cannot be the enabler in this moment. You've got to be honest. But why not set a boundary? Hey, I'm okay if we go out if you have one. Right? I'm okay if over the next six hours, because it's going to be a long party, you have two. But we're going to set that agreement. If you're going to go above and beyond that, you got to come to me and you got to say, hey, I've already had two. I'm feeling okay. Do you care if I have a third? But you're actually going to give them permission that you already gave them when you married them and said, my body is not my own. My body is also yours. So I want to honor you with my body. That would change your marriage. It would change your marriage in every way if you would take that principle and play it out. But the reason that most of us don't is because honestly, we don't wanna let anybody else have a say in our lives. And it's that pride that is going to destroy you. And I love you too much not to tell you. So these next two passages, they're gonna hurt, they're gonna hurt if this is a struggle for you, but please don't turn off your ears, please don't harden your hearts, please don't, because they are critical for you to understanding God's heart on this issue. Galatians chapter five, Paul says, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. I don't know how to be any clearer there. There's a long list. This is what we call one of Paul's vice lists. There's a long list of things that God hates. And those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's as clear as it gets. I know today it's popular to go to a funeral and everybody celebrates, no matter how, what kind of life that person lived like, man, they're at peace now. They may not be. Let this sink in for a minute because a good father tells you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear, because he loves you. And if you are feeling convicted in any way that drunkenness is listed along these other things that God hates, be convicted by that. Don't run from him, run to him. Let me show you one more. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, very similar. He says, or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If you have a problem and everybody around you is saying this, Swallow your pride for a minute and say, I need help. I need help. 
If you've ever looked at the 12 steps, the very first step is admitting I have a problem. And the very next step, if I'm not mistaken, step two is admitting I can't beat this on my own. I need somebody, some buddies to come alongside me and help. But help to what? And this is where I wanna close. The very next verse, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And that is what some of you were. Some of you were drunkards, and some of you were swindlers, and some of you were evildoers, and some of you were sexual offenders, and some of you were homosexual offenders. Some of you were doing those things. The church in Corinth had a lot of those people in their presence. Some of you did these things, but you were washed. That's the beauty of baptism. It's a marker moment, a moment of time when you go into the water and what you're doing is you're leaving the old you behind. The old me that used to do these things is dying in the water. The new me is being birthed and coming to life. So when I come out of that water, I'm a new creation. I've marked this decision for Christ. I'm no longer gonna live the way I used to live. I'm no longer gonna do the things I used to do. I'm now alive with him. I'm accepting that I have a new identity in heaven and it's gonna change the way that I live here on earth. That's why he says, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Justified just means that when you stand before God and he says, what have you done? You're going to say, I'm with that guy. And he's going to look at you and say, he has the name of Jesus over him. And the word sanctified is the word for holiness. It means you're being transformed and renewed in your walk with Jesus. So if you're feeling convicted because you went down into the waters, you came out, but you're still living the way you used to live, then let this be a call out from your father who loves you and says, I long to discipline those that I love. I long to correct you and rebuke you and chastise you so that you can become like my dear children. Yeah. God has no desire to crush you. He has no desire to hurt you or to punish you. He has every desire to set you free and to bless you. So any conviction you're hearing in your heart, let's go to him about that. Before we actually take communion, I just want to tell you two things real quick. One, if you're being convicted and you need help, text us. You can text CONNECT at 317-565-4911. You can do this if you're watching at home online. If you're here in the room at the end of our service, we'll have our Connect team members down on the side. They're prepared to just meet with you, pray with you, get your information to help follow up. You don't have to do this alone. We're here. We're here. Now, go ahead and take out your communion. If you're visiting with us, the reason that we do this is we do this every week to remind ourselves that Jesus is here. He's alive. He died and he rose and he's reigning from heaven over us right now. He's in the room. And he's in the room in the bread and in the juice as we celebrate. This is his presence with us. You're eating and drinking his grace. So if you've made a mistake and you've done something you weren't supposed to do, even as recently as last night, take this moment to get right with him again. And then pray for God to give you the boldness to do whatever you need to do next so that it never happens again. I'll start a prayer and then I hand it off to you. Father, would you meet us in this place? Comfort us with your love. God, I pray for any of my brothers and sisters in here who are struggling with um, alcohol in some way or another. It's gotten them. God, would you let this moment not just pass by, but would you meet them, deeply convict them, 
And whatever steps they need to take next, whether it's reaching out or admitting to somebody they love that they have a problem, God, would you just meet them and set them free? By the power in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name we pray.